Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we share the incredible lengths people go to to create their families with the help of reproductive science and technology. Today's episode explores a growing trend in the modern world, families created with the help of donor conception. Today's episode is presented by California Cryobank. With over 45 years of experience and with one of the largest and most diverse selection of sperm donors, California Cryobank maintains the industry's highest quality standards to give clients the support they need and the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy. For more, visit cryobank.com. Sperm donation has been around since the 1950s and has helped build countless families for people with male factor infertility and or women without male partners. When it started and in the decades that followed, most sperm donors were anonymous and many people who used sperm donors were actually discouraged from telling their offspring that they were conceived this way. But as donor conception grew, so did the data and the feedback from this group of donor-conceived children who often demanded to know their genetic roots. With 23andMe and Ancestry.com and other genetic testing platforms, this continues to gain popularity and more and more are discovering that their families sometimes held a secret about donor conception. My guests today come from different perspectives of donor conception. Sydney's dad was a sperm donor in the 1980s, and Haley was conceived via sperm donation during the same period. Both guests share an understanding for donor conception as women in lesbian marriages who relied on sperm donation to build their respective families. On this episode, we cover Sydney and Haley's personal stories and discoveries as they learned about their conception stories and DNA how this information has positively changed their lives and or made them question their identities, and how this information has shaped them as parents of donor-conceived people today. First, I'd like to welcome Sydney Sharon to the podcast. Sydney is the voice behind the Instagram account, The Sharon Moms, where she shares her life as a same-sex parent of two donor-conceived children, while also documenting her current reciprocal IVF journey for baby number three with her wife. As the social media voice behind California Cryobank, Sydney's personal experience as the parent to two California Cryobank kids provides a special and elevated understanding to the content thousands of people connect with every day. You really do, Sydney, bring a perspective that so few people have. Welcome to the Pregnish Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. I've known you for a while and we've never talked about all of this. I'm so excited to be here and to finally get this uh, conversation started and to be able to share it all with you. Oh, it's it's great because, you know, not only have I known you, we've done great work together with Pregnantish and California Cryobank uh, through the years. But I realize now, wow, you you have this perspective as someone whose dad was previously a sperm donor, as someone with a couple donor-conceived children, now pregnant with another child and someone who works in the industry, you must see it from every side. But one thing I didn't know, Sydney, until a few minutes ago, so this was news to me, is that it was news to you that your dad had been a sperm donor. So when did you learn that and how did you learn that? 
the the story has a lot of irony for me because so so my mom is is an analyst so nothing goes unsaid in our home it is the safest space you can be in we don't really keep secrets from each other and i think that this part of both of my parents lives were it was just so out of sight out of mind and i think back in the 80s my dad uh was donating while he was dating my mom at the time and my dad's a dentist so he was in dental school at NYU, was approached by the local sperm bank or saw one of those advertisements, decided to go and try it out. He passed like the very few criteria that you had to pass back then. Um, I think you had to have a certain GPA and be HIV negative. And that was kind of it. And he took my mom out for dinner that night. And my dad had no money. And my mom was very confused. She's like, did you rob a bank? What's going on? And he goes, so look, dinner's going to go one of two ways. Either you're going to love me more <laughs> or um, you'll probably be done with me after tonight. And my mom, being an analyst now, she was in social work school, thought that this was beyond fascinating. And I think back then they didn't really know what would come of sperm donating. My dad really did do it because he thought the science behind it was great. If there was ever a time in the world where this could make a difference, that would be kind of cool. And primarily he did it because he needed money to get through medical school. We only found out, ironically, the same weekend that we announced we were pregnant with our first daughter. So the dominoes kind of all folded at the perfect time. My dad had done 23andMe a few years prior to me getting pregnant and turned off all of those notifications because every day he was like, you're connected to somebody and, you know, it's all like fifth cousins and sixth cousins. And he was tired of those emails. And he finally went on and saw that there were, I think there was two at the time that had connected as children. There was, you know, 48, 52, somewhere in that range of people who were matching with his DNA. And my dad, not only had he forgotten, he had forgotten my mom knew about it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was kind of like... I just went through this whole process of finding a sperm bank, finding a sperm donor, getting pregnant, and you never thought to be like, oh, you know, this is ringing a bell. It never rang a bell for him. And thank God I married Brit, and she's the best human on this planet. And she's like, this is amazing. <laughs> what if they become part of our life? And what if our kids have questions? We don't have to make answers up or try to figure it out. They will have biological aunts and uncles who they can ask real questions to who will have real answers for them. And that was all it took for me to be like, I need to get these people in my life. Wow. Now, did your dad, you've subsequently, I imagine, had some real talk conversations with him about this. Did he literally kind of forget that he did it or was it he was just going to take it to the grave? And it, like, what? where do you think he was coming from by not sharing it? I think there's a few things. I really do believe it was so out of sight, out of mind. I think when you are, you know, 20, 21, 22, and, you know, my dad's, you know, almost 60 now, I think that much time had lapsed, you know, 30 plus years. I don't remember everything I did. I don't know if, if something like sperm donation for, I, I don't know the men's perspective of it. I feel like if I was an egg donor, that would be something, there's so much that goes into being an egg donor physically. Um, for a guy, I don't know what that perspective would be. 
Yeah, and I think unless we've been through it, we don't really know what it is. So we, it's hard to judge anyone, especially decades ago, who did this also for the science, as you said. We had a sperm donor on the podcast, one of the first pregnancy podcasts ever, was a guy who donated 33 times back in the 80s, a medical student as well. Uh, and so this was happening all across, definitely all across North America, and uh, in the name of science as well. They, they were fascinated. This was cutting-edge new technology yep. and uh, very exciting. And I, I love the story, though, of how, of how your mom questioned him and that detail of the dinner didn't get by her. That's, that's really, really yep. interesting. So <laughs> once you learned that your dad was a sperm donor and once Britt gave you that gift of the perspective of the gifts that it could bring your family who are donor conceived. How did that change your perspective of the work you do at California Cryobank? So at the time, I was not working at California Cryobank. I've only been with them for just under two years. But the perspective that I have now, people have often told me that I view the world with these rosy colored glasses. So I tend to view things more on the glass being half full. So I think most of these stories are can be really beautiful. And I super empathize with these, with the donor conceived community who are finding out now and not being told anything as children. But again, I come from a family where we talk about everything, the birds and the bees and, and your menstrual cycle and where babies actually come from and using real body parts. Like that was part of my normal upbringing. And I, I even as a 33-year-old, I'm still trying to process that most of my peers weren't brought up that way. So I think that there is a lot of taboo about bodies and about families and about conception, regardless how anybody was conceived, even if it was in the bedroom. I think what sperm banks have been doing is incredible. And now that I have now connected with six, so we call each other bio-sibs, so bio-siblings. That's the term that we've coined it and that works for us. So I've connected with six of them and we've been to each other's weddings. My my bio sisters all zoomed in for the birth of my son. It's like I've known them my whole life. I want that for everybody. Because we have an Instagram account that we started well before influencer was even, I think, a word in the dictionary. Th that for us was how can we make a, a it's kind of like a, a love letter, like a journal that people can see because in our home visibility matters as a two-mom gay. Jewish family, we wanted to just kind of show that this was normal. And obviously families like mine have been have been kind of been beautifully shown on on social media. But I think that that more of these stories need to be told. I think the thing that that hits home the hardest isn't families like mine. It's more so the families that are dealing with male factor infertility, where I see there being the biggest disconnect. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with taboos, shame. I think most people think infertility and they think women. Oh, for sure. Men are left out. Men are left out of... And literally, when we think just logically, how's a baby made sperm meets egg, 
why wouldn't we logically think maybe the sperm can have issues because <laughs> literally we be, we need both parts to make a baby. But somehow it's been pegged as a women's issue. And you're absolutely right, Sydney, that the shame that we're at Pregnantish constantly trying to elevate male voices, male stories, male factor, because they're so left out of this community, this storytelling, and quite frankly, uh, being... You know, if you have the disease of infertility, you're born without sperm, some of these issues that are medical, you're left out of the medical storytelling too. That's problem for insurance coverage and other issues uh, that may arise, right? So what kind of support at California Cryobank, uh, both for people pursuing donor conception and those who are your donors, do you have and how do you work with both kind of sides to make this the most beautiful experience it can be for so many families. Yeah. So I think that in, I think when people think California cryobank, they think you can get sperm from us, which is totally, absolutely true. <laughs> but we also have um, a really big part of our, of our company and the services that we provide is fertility preservation. So whether that is, men who need to preserve their sperm or women who need to pre pre uh, preserve eggs or embryos. If somebody knows that, that they will be going through cancer treatments, that they can come to us and preserve their fertility before it being affected through treatments that, you know, cancer can, can affect. I think for our donors, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that I think sets us apart is that we put our sperm donors through a rigorous psychological evaluation, which I think is really important because it's not just here's, here's my sperm. Obviously they need to check a few, you know, physical and educational criteria, but I think that psych evaluation is something that's really important, especially given what we're learning about the donor conceived community wanting to know their roots. I think similar to children who are adopted, it's not that they're not appreciative of their families, it's they want to know where they came from. And I think that's totally valid and totally fair. We all want to know where we come from. I think that's that's kind of an innate part of, of being human. And, and I think for our sperm donors to know that they're to go through the psychological evaluation of you might get a knock at your door one day, you might take 23andMe, somebody in your family might take 23andMe, and you might not ever take it. But if a donor conceived person takes it and somehow is connected, you might get that knock on your door or that in email in your inbox. So I think that for, for our sperm donors, and I think the other thing to note is that I, 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 as of 2018, all of our donors have to be ID disclosure, meaning that they all have to agree that when a child turns 18, if they choose to want to know more, that California Cryobank will give them all the information we have on the sperm donor. So there is no more closed. There is no more anonymous. There is, I, I'm a yes, I am doing this and I am aware of what the future may hold. I love that transparency because the research, as you well know, keeps showing that that's, that's important to donor conceived children to have that option. And whether or not, as you say, whether or not they exercise it and ever contact their biological dad in this case, it's up to them. It really, it's not, it shouldn't be up to us or the industry to dictate that. I think that there's still some holes. I think that there's still some, some key learnings that the industry as a whole have to kind of bridge. But I'd like to 
think that California Cryobank is doing what they can with the information we have and the resources that we have to make that difference. You know, I think the other thing that sets us apart is our California Cryobank sibling registry. So it's completely free to join. You have to be a California Cryobank family. You don't have to join, but I loved that this was not something that was just kind of out there for any sperm bank conceived person, family to join. Britt and I did decide to join and we've already connected with a family and we are already Instagram friends. (laughs) And it's really cool to have just family everywhere. And I think it really is whatever you make it to mean. And I think family is what gets us through this life and makes it that much sweeter and more enjoyable. So I I love that we we join, you know, and, and my kids are still on the young side. Thea's, Thea's not even four yet and she's our oldest. So now that I am pregnant, she has been asking some questions. Her favorite movie is Mamma Mia. And <laughs> recently, the question of where where is Thea's dad came up because Sophie's looking for her dad in the movie. So, you know, these questions are coming up. We tell her the truth. We do our best to make it age appropriate, which is sometimes a little bit difficult. But when you don't lie and you do tell the truth and you're honest with your kid about, you know, sometimes mommy doesn't know how to answer these questions. I'm doing the best that I can. And we'll keep trying until we get it right. And it makes sense. I think that's what that's what matters. For sure. I, you know, I've I've often talked about how I've edited books. I've read Ariel, who's also almost four from when she was really little, so many books talk about coming out of mommy's belly. She did not come out of my belly. Um, so she knows the story that cousin Alana uh, carried her. She knows it was mommy's egg and daddy's sperm and cousin Alana carried. But that most adults don't know how babies are made. So I don't exactly expect her to understand it now. But I guess the idea that we're both sharing, Cindy, is that normalizing this in even the storytelling, sharing when we don't know but we want to learn, making it open and not scary and not shrouded in secrecy is is going to make all the difference. So have you told both your kids from the youngest of ages that, you know, you already have what, quote unquote, a modern family with two moms. Like, how have you communicated who you are as a family to your children, both with donor conception and everything else? So I think, um, not I think, I know how privileged and blessed I am to live in California. And two mom families are a normal thing here. Being a Jewish family is the norm here the anti-Semitism that's on the rise right now is crazy scary. And and all of the anti-LGBTQ laws that are trying to be passed this year alone, like I, I could throw up. And I live in a place where I feel untouched. So in that regard, I, I, I want to be clear that I know that I'm very privileged in that. My favorite book to read my kids is what makes a baby by Corey Silverberg. I think that he does I think that they do a really beautiful job of talking kind of about what you're talking about. You need three things to make a baby. You need a sperm, you need an egg, and you need a uterus. And sometimes that takes two people. Sometimes that takes three people. Sometimes that takes more. But ultimately, at the end of the day, love is what makes a family. And while as cliche as that may sound, I don't know anything that's more true than that. 
And when my kids ask questions, we answer them as truthfully as we can to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. Definitely important. How did you and Britt pick your sperm donors? What were you considering? Because you are helping people at California Cryobank with these processes, but you've been through it a few times. So uh, what, what were you looking for? I started looking first because I, my plans have plans. I am very type A and Brit is more kind of go with the flow. It makes for a really awesome marriage. And I had been looking for a few months and I kept resetting our searches and criteria. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. What search criteria? What, who am I looking for? I already married the love of my life. The sperm that I'm choosing, it doesn't really matter who I choose. They're all highly qualified sperm donors. So like what really, what am I picking? And we were getting closer and closer to our first date with our doctor and we needed sperm. And I vividly remember coming in from the living room into our bedroom, throwing my laptop at Brit and saying, you choose. And 20 minutes later, she found him. So... (laughs) I'm a little bit more emotional and she's a little bit more logical. And the way that she narrowed it down was we wanted someone that resembled kind of a blend of our families. So all the men in our families are like 5'11 to 6'2. So we chose a sperm donor who was between 5'11 and and 6'2. We wanted someone who had our blood type to help increase the chances of our children having either my blood type or Brit's blood type. So in case anybody needed something, we could be the first line of defense for our children. Those two criteria alone actually narrowed down a lot of people. We had like less than a dozen to choose from at that point. For us, it did not matter if they had uh, Jewish ancestry or not. They were being raised by two Jewish moms. Um, Eye color, I mean, you go into genetics, it's not just what my eye color is and the sperm donor's eye color is. Nathan has blue eyes. The sperm donor and I both have hazel. So when I kept going to the pediatrician, I was like, when are his eyes changing? They're like, his eyes are blue. And I was like, no, that's not possible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) We both have, we have recessive blue on both sides. So, you know, for us, those were the most important factors. And then what we did is when we opened up all of the the profiles, we looked at the birth year of the donor. We wanted someone who is of similar age to us so that when our children turn 18, that they will be what we consider age appropriate of an of a age gap. We happened to find someone born the same year as us. And then from there, we just looked at medical history and we chose the healthiest one that we could find. And that's who we went with. So for us, like I say it out loud, to me, that sounds very logical. There's not a whole lot of emotion poured in. Like I wasn't looking for a creative person or a math whiz or none of that really mattered to me. I think our children come through us, not from us, and they're going to be whoever they want to be. So for us, it was really about finding someone that was a blend of, of my family and Brit's family and someone who was healthy. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. I mean, that's great criteria. At California Cryobank, obviously, we're sharing an offer on the podcast today for people who want to explore this. Uh, what information do intended parents get about a sperm donor if they're looking? You know, it's funny. When when I connected with my, my bio siblings, one of them has the document that her mother was given when she chose my dad. And it is an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper front and back. That's it. That's it. Oh my goodness. 
when you become a family with us and you report your pregnancy, you are given a digital donor keepsake. So the information that we have on your donor, you get given on a digitally, they're all downloads and it fills an entire Dropbox folder because you have, oh, I should probably count one day how many pieces of paper we have on, um, (laughs) on our donor, but you, you get, you get everything that your donor's profile has. And I mean, I'm talking about facial features. I'm talking about medical family history. I think I know more about my donor than I know about my family. (laughs) Of course. Um, a lot of our donors now have um, an expanded genetic test summary. You get their profile. So their profiles can include things like their hair color, their eye color, their weight, the type of hair that they have, our staff impressions. Medical history includes the donor, any biological siblings, their parents, biological grandparents on both sides, and any aunts and uncles that are genetically tied to them. I mean, it's it's extensive. So extensive. Dan, what pictures, what visuals do you see? So we we do have the option for our donors to provide adult photos. There are also what we call baby photos. Our donor happened when we were looking for our sperm donor. Adult photos were not yet part of the catalog at California Cryobank. They now are. So for us, the, the photos that our donor provided as baby photos were not newborn photos. They were somewhere probably around one, three, and like seven. So you kind of had a cool idea of what this guy kind of looked like, maybe. We have an express yourself section. So donors who want to submit a written essay, a song they wrote, an art piece that they've made, it just voice recordings. Our guy has a voice recording and some of our families love it. Some of our families are indifferent about it. Uh, we we try to provide as much information to paint a full picture. And I think that's kind of a really cool gift. That is such a cool gift. Tell me about your donor siblings, because I'm from Toronto originally. And I remember speaking on your Instagram and you were at a wedding of a bio sibling in Toronto. <laughs> so when did you first meet them and what, what has it been like to have them in your life? They are my, they're my rocks. And I call them my brothers and my sisters in conversation and people who've known me for a while, but maybe aren't as up to date on my life um, happenings. They're like, you have a sister. (laughs) (laughs) So my, my genetic family, my little nuclear family are, are my mom, my dad, then there's me and I have two younger brothers. And since then we've now connected with six bio siblings. So in total, there's nine of us. And when my dad first realized that he had these two connections, this must have been in May. And that July, I met the first the first bio sibling. So we wow. move fast in our family. Yes. We love hard. Um, <laughs> and we we met them as soon as we possibly humanly could. We were we love people. And the fact that they have a genetic tie to us kind of makes it that much sweeter. So I think by the end of that year, we had met all of the ones that we had connected with. The fall, this was in 2018 and 2019, we connected with one other sibling. And by the end of that year, we were all at his wedding. And that was the first time that all nine of us were together under the same roof with my dad. We have, there's three in New York. There's one in Canada, one in Missouri and one in Arizona. Wow. And what's, what's cool about the, the, the New York siblings, um, is some of them grew up blocks away from each other. 
when we went to Max's wedding, one of my other sisters who who came to that asked my dad previously if she could bring her mom and her grandma to meet him. My dad was like, uh, duh. Watching this mom meet her sperm donor with her, you know, 30-something-old daughter present and the grandmother there to support it all. Like, I don't think Hollywood can write something that mm. awesome. It was it was so surreal. And the next thing we did was we all traveled um, a few months ago to my sister's wedding, which was postponed from COVID twice. Um, so that was a celebration on many, many levels. We we travel near and far. We try to get together at least once a year, collectively, all of us. We, we have family reunions. I, I do home births with my babies. And when I was in labor with, with Nathan, all of the sisters, a few of the brothers called in and created a Zoom channel and were there with me. We wow. have a WhatsApp group. We we are, some of the similarities are kind of cool, like the way some of them walk. <laughs> um, my dad is flat-footed and that's a, a running joke in this new extended family. It's really, really cool. Wow. Yeah, I, I agree. Hollywood couldn't write it. I, I always say that our podcast is like sci-fi meets Hallmark. It's stranger than fiction in the best way, in the most inspiring, beautiful way. But it's, it's hard to explain sometimes. And actually, uh, when, when even I try to explain my journey to parenthood, I'm always like, how long do you have? Do you have an hour? Cause <laughs> it took many steps, but that's what makes it that much more, I think for so many of us deep and meaningful. Sydney, thank you so much for being on the Pregnant podcast. I am fascinated by your story. I love hearing your passion for serving people as you do at California cryobank and learning about your extended family. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor to share my story and to finally be on this podcast and talk more, more with you. After the break, we're going to speak with Haley, who learned recently that she was donor-conceived and is currently raising donor-conceived children. But first, a break from our episode sponsor, California Cryobank. I wanted to take a brief opportunity to thank today's episode sponsor, California Cryobank, which carefully selects the highest quality sperm donors to give clients the best possible opportunity for a safe and successful pregnancy. In fact, less than 1% of applicants become a California Cryobank donor. California Cryobank serves its customers by providing one of the largest and most diverse selection of highly screened donors, representing over 90 different ancestries. Nearly all donors in their network are currently attending or have graduated college, and comprehensive psychological screenings and criminal background checks are part of their selection process. This is one reason it's the number one sperm bank recommended by physicians. Ready to start your search? Head to cryobank.com and use code PREGISH, P-R-E-G-I-S-H, to get started with free access to their Level 2 subscription. And now I'd like to welcome Haley Darknell King to the podcast. Haley's parents used an anonymous sperm donor as part of an early IVF treatment in the 1980s, and Haley didn't find this out until a few years ago in her 30s. Haley was a police officer in the UK where she lives with her wife of 11 years. 
But more recently, she started educational and advocacy work around donor conception, hoping to raise awareness and help others on their parenting journeys. Like Sydney, she documents her journey and family on her Instagram channel, and she is passionate about connecting with the donor conception community. Haley, thank you so much for being here on the Pregnish Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you live. I know we've followed each other for a few years now. Thank you so much for having me on. I'd first like to start with, we introduced you and a little bit about who you are, but what else can you tell us? Um, When I met you on Instagram, what I was so struck by is what you put in your bio about donor conception. And I know that's a big part of your identity today, but tell us more about you. Um, so I, I can say for a big part of my life, I was a, a serving police officer um, for um, quite a small force in the UK. I was an underwater search and rescue uh, diver. Um, and sadly, I was injured in a nasty accident whilst working for the police. And I ended up leaving the force quite young in service. Yeah, I've, I've had lots of things go on in my life. Um, and then, like I say, we could obviously go on to my donor conception discovery, if you like, later on. But I had a lot of things going on in a very short space of time, so and a lot of things to process. But I think over the last sort of seven or eight years, I've kind of done full circle with all these things. And I found talking about my story and what's happened on Instagram really therapeutic, what started off as a blog. So, yeah, that's kind of me. And obviously a mum as well. So let's, let's say there's lots of things going on. I love it. I mean, it's so interesting you were doing deep dives because in a way you had to do this deep dive into your donor (laughs) conception story. So tell us about that because my understanding and from what you shared with us so far is that you only found out, right, in 2019, you only found out recently that you were donor conceived. How did that happen? Yeah, I actually found out in a family argument in 2015. So that was, um, so, like I say, nearly, nearly eight years ago now. And it was a huge shock. I'd always known that I was an IVF baby. So years ago, they used to refer to it as test due babies. And my parents had tried for very, you know, for many years to have me. And I was quite fortunate when my parents were in that sense that they were very, uh, they were actually successful in some of the early IVF trials with Patrick Steptoe and Robert Edwards, which were the, the consultants that were first involved with IVF technology at Bourne Hall. Um, in the late 70s and 80s. So like I say, I found out very late in life. It was a huge shock. And my parents had basically never told a soul. Um, They were told by the professionals back in the 80s not to tell me about the fact that they'd used an anonymous donor because that was kind of the advice from professionals back then. And then, like I say, it was only then um, after the birth of our own children. So I'm, I'm in a um, relationship um, with another woman so we got married we wanted to start a family and of course in order to do that we would if one of us wanted to be genetically related to the children we were going to need a sperm donor so we had our children in 2017 and then it was only later on then a couple of years later that I got curious about my own story and my genetic heritage which prompted me to do a DNA test which is what I think you're referring to at the, at the start about in, in 2019 I did that I mean it was a huge shock I, I think that I, I'd never, I'd never really had any inclination that that was the case. I look very physically like my dad that raised me in colouring. He's fair, fair skinned and fair hair, like blue eyes, and, and and so am I. And I'm very, I'm actually very, very like my dad in personality. Everyone always comments. So there was nothing to suggest that, you know, some donor conceived people report saying that they felt out of place um, growing up um, with their raised family for whatever reason. I, I genuinely never felt that but 
like I say, I, when I did find out I was the only conceived, and then I subsequently went on to find who my biological father was, so that the sperm donor that my parents had used, there was lots of things that I found out about him that made me think, well, actually, that kind of makes sense now, like, you know, like little things like that. And I actually always used to think I looked quite like my mum, but, I, you know, that, that kind of um, was blown out of the water again the, um, once once I met my, uh, once I met my parents. What? How did you meet? How did that happen? Because I and it, it is fascinating, isn't it? I would like to talk to you more about this, that the advice in the 70s and 80s, especially was to keep it secretive. And we know now, uh, with enough data and enough uh, donor conceived people, we know that that's not necessarily the right way to approach this at all. People want to know their DNA uh, origin. And uh, but for you to find your biological father how did that happen and what happened when you found him yeah i mean that definitely was the the guidance and like i said no one could have imagined dna testing or commercial dna testing like ancestry and 23 me would be a thing so i was actually able to send off my like i say i first did ancestry.com which is essentially a commercial database where you send your um it's not very pleasant you send a spit sample off to the database and then your dna gets compared against anybody else that's on the database. And the interesting thing is that a lot of people think that in order to match, say you're looking for um, a genetic parent or, or anything like that, that you would need to uh, match directly with them in order to get that information. That's actually not true, that you can actually trace relatives through close matches, or even in my case, it was a distant cousin. So a distant cousin of my biological father was on Ancestry and through lots of genealogy, record searching, public tree work, good old social media, detective work. So going back to my policing days yeah. and, and, and looking, looking online, all public available records, publicly available records, I was able to narrow down my biological father to a set of brothers. And yeah, like I say, I kind of just took the search from there, really. And when you, when you did locate him, tell me about that moment. Well, I initially left, I, I managed to find an address for him. So I was able, a very, very long story short, I was able to leave a, a handwritten let, letter for him at his home address, which he later opened. He was actually away on a long trip and it was about three weeks before he got back to me, which was just, the wait was just awful because I didn't know if he, he'd got it or anything like that. And obviously at this point, I didn't know anything about him other than his name and an address. And I knew that he was actually a, a doctor. So going back to that, I, I, my parents, the only thing my parents were told is that the donor that was potentially a medical student. So that was the only thing I had is like a clue. But um, when he got back from his trip, he actually contacted me and we arranged a meeting. So I actually went to his home address, went in, um, he opened the So the first time I saw him properly was at his front door and he saw me. And it was like looking at a familiar stranger. That's the only way I would describe it. I could see instantly the similar features my pointy nose for example <laughs> that I'd always wondered about because no one in my family had this nose and I could see my nose on him and yeah it was just really natural we got on very well um I don't know whether it's because we got shared genetics or we get on we get on well or whether we just get on well as people but yeah we like I say we've stayed in touch now for the last um so that's uh, over two years now, about two and a half years, we've stayed in touch. Mm, that's that's amazing. How did you, uh, f with your your the raised family, 
uh, bring them into this? Did you bring them into this? Do you have any advice for others who are on this journey with the curiosity you had to get in touch with your biological parent? Yeah, I, it was really difficult. And I think I, I get asked this a lot because obviously the natural thing is people are sort of saying, oh, you know, what did your dad think? Or, you know, what did your parents think? And I really worried about that too. I didn't want to upset my dad, you know, and I was very mindful that maybe they'd never intended for the secret to come out. So they'd had 40 years of sitting on this huge secret and it was a lot for them to process too. But I did make a conscious effort. I, I was actually speaking to my wife about it before. And as soon as I was able to locate Jonathan, I told my parents, I told them that I DNA tested and that I was my, re and you know, my reasons for doing it were, were purely curiosity. I, I felt like I just really wanted to have a photograph of who, you know, my biological father was. And they were very, very supportive. And it, it actually, it was kind of nice that it done full circle because I was very adamant that I wanted to break that cycle of shame and secrets. And I didn't want to keep that part of my life secret from my family either. You know, um, so I felt like I, you know, I owed them that to tell them. Um, and they've been very good. I mean, we've had some difficult conversations. I'm not, I'm not going to kind of dress it up that it's all, you know, pink elephants and, and fluffy rainbows you know it, it was it's been a very difficult few years especially right at the start but it's opened up a lot of good communicate communication with my parents and i since and if anyone's listening if you haven't told your children that they're donor conceived whatever age they are my advice would be that it's never too late to tell them and i would certainly suggest that it's better coming from a loving parent the truth than say in a DNA test you know lots of people are taking random DNA kits these days or like I did I found out like, indirectly in a family argument you know th those ways weren't the best ways to be told whereas you know like I say if you are listening to this and, you're, and you haven't haven't told your kids that it's still it's still not too late to that's great advice I think uh, so often what we hear in the research and I know you're very uh, much in this world so you've probably learned the same thing I'm about to say but that when children grow up with the awareness of how they came to be it can even be a source of pride because of how wanted they were and how much their parents fought to have them and how many people helped it can be a beautiful story but when like you when it's discovered later in life we we are contacted at pregnantish all the time now that genetic testing is rising by people, a lot of medical students donated sperm, it turns out, in the 70s and 80s. So we've heard this story multiple times. We know I don't also want to put pink elephants and fluffy rainbows on the story for some people. It's not a good discovery. Are you meeting some of those folks as well who had anonymous donors learn about it later and it's caused issues? And how do you support that person or community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming more and more common. So even in my own, so I've found three other donor siblings. So that's my half brothers and sisters that were obviously born through. So Jonathan is my biological father. So from his donations, obviously, there was lots of other children born. So I've actually been able to connect with them through DNA testing as well. And sadly, some of them found out through DNA testing, just from the, from the act of doing that and then matching with us other siblings. So, yeah, I mean, my, like I say, it is becoming more and more common and as these kit prices are coming down. So when I first started looking years ago, they were over sort of three, four hundred pounds for a kit. You can get them now for sort of 50 quid. So what's that? Forty dollars or whatever. You know, people are getting them for gifts for Christmas and Black Friday deals and things. So, yeah, it's becoming quite common. 
So I think that's probably why you're seeing a, a rise like with people contacting yourself. I mean, in terms of advice, I think that it's always good to get some advice from someone that's trained, um, so a therapist or counsellor, and ideally to find someone that's got experience dealing with these kind of late discovery donor conception or adoption even um, so, uh, stories, because it is a quite a unique experience. And what I have found like a common story among late discovery donor conceived people is that you kind of are experiences can kind of be dampened down by the fact oh but you were so wanted that you know which is funny I do feel very wanted I feel extremely grateful for being here and you know if it wasn't for my parents having the fertility treatment and using a donor you know I, I, I wouldn't be here I wouldn't exist but sometimes I think as a result of that though our kind of feelings are kind of invalidated if we we feel maybe a little bit upset or angry or resentful maybe towards the fertility industry so yeah, I, I would say that like that's kind of coming out a bit more now. I hear that because in a way, it, yeah, it totally erases or undercuts the emotional pain of this discovery. And it, you might evolve into a place together with your donor that's great like you have with Jonathan, but you might not. Your donor may not want to be contacted. You may have complicated feelings about donor siblings. Uh, Sydney is our guest who has wonderful, uh, exciting chapters with her donor siblings, and that that's beautiful too. But definitely, I think uh, your voice is so important in this category because we need to show the good, the bad, the ugly, the real side of all of this. And it, it, we're a lot more aware today as the industry has exploded than maybe we were 30 years ago. So maybe we give ourselves a little bit of a not a break, but maybe we, we say, okay, they did the best they knew how then, but it's it's no longer acceptable, right, to keep things shrouded in secrecy. What has changed in in your research about donor-conceived children and donor-conceived uh, world today that maybe wasn't there before? Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, you, you hit the nail on the head there, the sort of telling early is, is definitely there's been a huge shift in research towards supporting parents to tell their children young um, and it can it, it can be a difficult process depending on your social circles or if you are part of a certain religion where you, you know your child might not be fully accepted into the family there's lots of reasons why parents don't tell even today but there is has been a very you know in my eyes a positive shift towards telling but I think also there's there's been a shift towards like we we've got a situation where you can either select anonymous or open idea 18 donors so in, in America, you can still use a fully anonymous donor, which in the UK is actually was made against the law in 2005. So the donor that we used is an open idea 18 donor. So at 18, they can retrieve his information, um, identifying inf information if they wish. But then you've also got donors like known donors. So I think there's been a shift in parents now. So from a parent's point of view, looking at their options about what donors are available and what donors they would like to use to start their family and the implications of doing so and using each of those types of donors. So I'd say that's been a huge shift. That is a huge shift. And and you and Sydney both share the fact that you're raising donor-conceived children. You picked sperm donors as well. So tell me about that process. How What did you consider when you were choosing the genetic uh, makeup of your children's biological dad? It was mainly, I mean, the big thing for me, so I, I'm the non-genetic parent, so um, we were using my wife's egg. So we, I think, which is quite common in 
in any relationship for the non-genetic parent you want maybe a donor that's going to look like like so a donor that looks a bit like me so that was our one of our things we looked for so similar hair coloring you know fair skin and you know i've got light colored eyes and things like that just so that was kind of our one of the things that we looked at but also for us it was really important and because of what had happened to me being donor conceived and i was obviously fortunate to find jonathan through dna testing but we didn't want our kids to have to have to dna test or have to go searching potentially that, that if they wanted to find the information out of uh, of the donor that they would have that available to them although that was it is now the law in the uk it was always going to be a priority of us to, to select the donor that not only was an open id donor but actually in his profile actually mentions the importance of being open and available for any future you know um, children to make contact and that was really important to both my wife and I. So that they were like the key things. Um, and actually, personality-wise, we started off trying to find someone that uh, you know that was a bit like me and sporty and have my interest. And the donor we picked was nothing like me in personality. So um, we, we were just you know there was lots of other things that we just thought, yeah, do you know what? This, we, we like this one. So you know, I always find it fascinating when we talk on the Pregnish podcast or in the world of Pregnish about genetic connections, because uh, you can be raised with a full genetic sibling, full genetic parents and feel like you're from another planet. Or you and your sibling might be totally different, but you're raised in the same house with the same DNA. So there's all kinds of combinations of family. And I, I recently read someone was saying, you know, uh, and maybe you've said this as well, that you can doubt probably when when you're not the genetic parent if your child isn't warm to you one day well is it because we're not genetically related you can have these kind of mind games i imagine uh, but i know i have a toddler now who sometimes just favors her dad and that's just what happens so it's so easy to put meaning right when genetics are involved how has it shaped your parenting and your your life to kind of be on both sides of of the donor conception process yeah i think it's it's actually being donor conceived and then having donor conceived children and being a non-genetic parent as well so like you quite rightly said like that those you know you you put everything those worries is always oh, it because i'm not genetically related to them or whatever but actually being donor conceived myself and knowing how much love i've got for my dad and we share no genetics, you know, and how similar we are with lots of our interests and um, our love for the same football teams and all these things. Um, and that's nothing to do with genetics. That's that's all to do with how we were raised. And I think that sometimes when I have had those insecurities about being the non-genetic parent, you know, in the two-man family and within our family, I've been able to kind of rationalize that a little bit and look back at my own situation and think actually it's got nothing to do with the DNA or lack of DNA connection that's just kids being kids and favoring their other mum you know or, or you know whatever it may be but it, it's just made me think and like going back to sort of how maybe think we're doing things maybe differently to how my parents maybe did it so being open and honest with our kids talking about you know being donor conceived from a young age reading them storybooks um you know it's so all these things that we're trying to incorporate from a young age, um, all the things I think that maybe I've learned from being donor conceived myself. Mm, that's so important. Is that why you started your Instagram page and your your platform? And it seems like it's growing. What have you seen change even since you've started it? Yeah, I, most of the people that follow me are parents of donor conceived children or looking to maybe have children by donor conception. And I, I originally started it because I was mainly in like Facebook, used to look in Facebook groups and things like that. 
and some of them were you know thousands and thousands of members deep but I, I noticed that there was always quite seemed to be quite a lot of conflict within these groups so you'd have donor perceived people and um, parents and then it would break into sort of um, these big long spiraling comments and I just thought you know I, I just thought one day I, I did an interview actually for somebody um, and on my story and I had to set up an Instagram account to do that <laughs> and, and then it just kept going I had people following me and asking me questions and then like I say it became it's, it's sort of become what it is today where I'm sort of just sharing what we're doing at home how we're talking to our children the resources that we're using and the books that we're using you know and and some of the the tips i suppose and, and sharing those resources and it's kind of yeah it's just it's not huge account but it's um it's an important one though it's it's obviously creating education and comfort for so many who follow you in terms of your now biological family jonathan your biological father the three half siblings you have how has that changed your life it's changed in so many ways. I think I've learned things that I didn't realize I needed to know. Um, just things about myself, things that I found very interesting about Jonathan that I can maybe sort of traits I can see in myself. And it's just nice to actually have a photo of him, which and medical history, which was also very important because obviously when I found out that I was donor conceived, my father's medical history, which I'd been quoting all my life, was completely wrong. So to have that, those blanks filled in has been life-changing in itself and having found my siblings as well some donor siblings i was raised an only child so realizing that i potentially got lots of siblings was quite exciting i've been in touch with them all i've only met them on like virtually at the moment but we're planning like a meetup at some point soon and yeah it's just like i say i just see it as an extension to my to my raise you know to my mum and dad you know i went from a very small family to potentially a very large, you know, large family. So, but it's, it's different. You know, it's, it is different. It's not. They're not. Like I say, I, I refer to them as my siblings, but we're not raised together. You know, there there is that difference. But um, yeah, they're just. It's just nice to know. Nice to know them, and it's interesting to find out about them. Wow. Is there anything else you want to add for listeners? Uh, so many people who follow us at Pregnantish and on the podcast are weighing next steps with their fertility, their future family planning, uh, any words of insight advice or support you want to offer? Yeah, I'd say just ask lots of questions. I know it sounds quite an obvious thing, but do your homework and, and look at, although obviously, I, and I understand it as being someone that, you know, we've had, I mean, my wife had to have IVF treatment. Um, my wife had some complications with her egg reserve and things like that. So I, I understand a little bit about how, much you know infertility can impact you and and how the focus is so much on getting pregnant and i totally understand that but my advice would be to maybe look at the so the donor that you're going to use potentially if that's the route you're going to go down maybe look at some of the decisions that you make at getting pregnant stage potentially may impact you and your family and your children more importantly you know for years later so just just look at your options and and ask questions about family limits um, how many children, you know, where the donor, if you're using a donor from a sperm bank or an egg bank, where where that donor is being used in the world, because that will impact things like sibling numbers. And just like I say, just just ask as many questions as you can, and then you're able to make informed choices. Love that. Thank you so much, Haley, for being on the Pregnish podcast. Uh, I I look forward to continuing to follow you. And can you remind people where they can find you? Yeah, so I've, I've actually just set up a website, um, allthingsdonorconception.com. 
or you can find me on DCP underscore journey underscore two underscore RP. And I didn't think too much about that Instagram <laughs> handle. When I said that. We'll it's put it the in the active. show notes. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're more than welcome to find me there. And um, yeah, like I say, I welcome questions or, or anything like that. So wonderful. Well, thank you again. And thank you for having me on. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast, where we always have real talk about fertility and life. Until next time.